0: This is Godfather. Send your traffic. Over. Roger. Line Sierra. Four enemy personnel. Break.
1: All right. Welcome, everybody, to the GreenSide Podcast. I am your host, Taylor Mooney. I have a very special guest with me today. I have President Emeritus James Wright. I'll give you a quick background on President Wright real quick. He is President Emeritus and a Leeser Wheelock Professor of History at Dartmouth College. He served as president from 1998. Until June 2009, a member of the Dartmouth faculty since 1969, he also served as dean of the faculty from 1989 through 1997, and as acting president of the college during the first six months of 1995. You also served as provost from 1997 through 1998, and finally, you're elected president in April of 1998. You're also the author of your newly released book. Enduring Vietnam, An American Generation and Its War. I want to welcome you today. Thank you for coming on.
0: I'm delighted to be here with you, Taylor.
1: Absolutely. So real quick, if we're going to do a little bit of your background, we'll talk about your book a bit. If someone were wanting to purchase your book, where can they go? Amazon.com? Or?
0: Oh, I think Barnes & Noble, Amazon. They can go to local bookstores, uh, certainly here, the, the Norwich Bookstore, the Dartmouth Bookstore, uh, they have it, uh, Sure.
1: Okay. Outstanding. And so we'll get into the, the the coolness of your book, but I think your own narrative, to me, I mean, when I first met you, I thought was just so neat. So um, I'll let you tell you can start off from when you, you joined as a young man in the Marine Corps.
0: Yeah. I joined the Marines in uh, 1957. I just graduated from high school. I was uh, 17 years old and uh, I joined with four of my uh, high school friends, graduating class friends. And uh, in, the, in the 1950s, in a uh, small town America, I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, uh, uh, the, we faced the draft, uh, and uh, uh, the Marine Corps was an option that uh, many people in my town uh, chose, rather than waiting to see if they'd be drafted or not. And uh, I spent three years in the Marines, and I got out in 1960 and decided I would go to college. Uh, nobody in my family had done that, and so I spent four years at a nearby school, Wisconsin State College, now part of the University of Wisconsin system. Uh, while I was there, I, I worked. We didn't have a GI Bill uh, then for, uh, I was a peacetime GI, and so I worked as a, as a bartender, as a night watchman, as a janitor, and uh, I worked in the mines. Uh, I was, uh, worked underground in the local mines, and uh, I was a powderman uh, setting dynamite charges. I recall when my shift boss asked me uh, one day if I was working on a drill machine underground. He asked me uh, if I'd like to be a powderman. He needed somebody to be a powderman. And I said, I've never handled a stick of dynamite in my life. And he said, Well, you're in the Marines. And I said, I don't care. I've still never <laughs> touched a stick of dynamite in my life. And he said, We can show you. How to do that pretty easily, and he said, "I'll pay you." Uh, I think it was twenty cents more an hour, and I said, "You mean two thirty-five an hour?" And he said, "Yep, I'll give you two thirty-five an hour." And I said, "Okay, you've got yourself a powderman." So I, <laughs> uh, I worked as a powderman in the mines. I graduated with a degree in history and English, and was fortunate to have a, a fellowship, a Danforth Fellowship, which allowed me. Uh, to go to graduate school uh, any place that I wanted. I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, completed my PhD in American history in 1969, and uh, came to Dartmouth that year. I'd never been in New England uh, before that, uh, and I thought, well, I'll go for a few years, and uh, here I am uh, now, what, 48 uh, years later, uh, hanging on, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a wonderful place to be over these years. So what initially drove you? You know, you were doing these different odd jobs.
1: You were making, you know, making money working as a night watchman or working in the mines. What where did your passion or your drive to go to school, where did that come from? Why did you decide school was a route for you at that time?
0: I thought I'd like to teach. Uh, I I decided I'd like to be a high school history teacher, actually. Uh, My uh, two of my aunts uh, had gone to School uh, in uh, the what the 19 late 20s early 30s during the Depression, where for six months where they uh, were uh, credentialed to teach in one-room rural schoolhouses, and uh, so uh, they always encouraged me to think about teaching. My dad had tried to go to college during the Depression, but he only lasted one semester. He just didn't have the money uh, to do that, and uh, so teaching was something that I valued very much and i thought maybe i'll be a coach maybe i'll go to be a high school history teacher and uh, help uh, coach football or something so that's where what started it and then i obviously became a history teacher uh, which is what i wanted to do but i did it at this wonderful school dartmouth
1: right and what, what made you choose Dartmouth? Was it just you put out some applications and this one came back, or is it a specific... They offered me a job. Uh, no, is that, know, that simple? People,
0: people entering the job market know that uh, sensation well. They, <laughs> they were I, I was, uh, had applied for several jobs, 68, 69. Uh, the, it was not as, as good as a few years earlier in terms of the academic job market, but it was not as tight as it would be a few years after that. And uh, I my I was in I'd been nominated for a few jobs had a had an interview uh, and then came here for an interview and Dartmouth moved quickly in the fall of 68 and offered me a position to teach American political history and uh, I accepted and came here.
1: So you came here in 1969 which was you know really during the height I would say around the height of the Vietnam War yes. what was what was um, what was Dartmouth campus like during that time and how did it? And how did your previous time as a Marine play into like how you fit in with the community or how you felt things were going on?
0: Well, I yeah, you know, I I didn't talk a lot about being in the Marines. Uh, friends of mine certainly knew I had been, but it wasn't something that I that I uh, talked about. I was uh, uh, by the by the sixty seven, sixty eight, so probably sixty seven, maybe even before that. I come to have some real reservations and, and uh, then more than reservations about uh, what we're trying to do in Vietnam, and uh, I did oppose uh, the war. Uh, not in, I, I didn't march in Madison, but I was involved with the McCarthy campaign in 1968 and uh, came here. Uh, the big buzz on campus when I came in 1969 was at the fall of the previous spring in May of uh, 1969 when, when students had occupied Parkhurst Hall mm-hmm. and uh, there, was, there, there were a number of disciplinary cases pending uh, for those students when I came in 69 and uh, this was a matter of a great deal of attention and controversy on campus. Uh, what was the college's discipline going to be for these students that had occupied the president's office Uh, And uh, then uh, in 1970, in the spring, when President Nixon sent uh, American troops into Cambodia, uh, and that was followed by the shootings at Kent State and at Jackson State, basically this campus uh, closed down in the spring of 1970. Uh, I went down to Washington that spring with uh, a number of Dartmouth students. We didn't go and uh, join any rallies. I don't know if there were any when we were there, but we met with some people from Congress and other places. I just wanted to go down and uh, and uh, be of support to them because then to encourage them to, to try to work uh, with the Congress on this. Uh, I uh, was by then very critical of the war, but I was never critical of the kids who were serving over there. I had a uh, an understanding that, uh, you know, for all I knew, some guys that I was serving with in the Marines were over there. Uh, I, 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 if they were, uh, we weren't keeping in touch with each other. I don't know that uh, for a fact, but I have no doubt that a number of them uh, were over there, and uh, I just uh, thought that they were uh, standing up and doing what they were asked to do uh, at a very difficult time.
1: Right, absolutely. And so, I'm assuming that having... You know that was the beginning of your professional career it's a very formative time added on that you're an historian it's led you now later on in life to you know or throughout your life to write books and write publications about war and about the troops or about soldiers and most recently you did write enduring vietnam an american generation and its war uh what is what is your new book about what is it what is the um
0: well, my new my new book my book is about the American generation the baby boomer generation that served in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But just just to back up for a minute on your 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 comment there and your your question, uh, I'm I'm not a military historian. Uh, I I had uh, my my writing was really on American political history, and the history of the American West. I taught uh, the American West course here for a number of years, and I wrote wrote on that. Uh, I really turned to military history, I think, because uh, after my first year after I stepped down as president, because I had been involved by then in a number of veterans' activities, and uh, I had been visiting uh, Walter Reed and Bethesda Hospitals since 2005 and was very much involved with, with veterans. I had helped to set up a counseling program at uh, Walter Reed, that's uh, Bethesda, that's still in place there, counseling. uh, uh, Men and women uh, who have been hospitalized as a result of the war. Uh, And I was involved in helping to set up, uh, to to, to do the language for the GI Bill that was passed in uh, 2008. Uh, The Yellow Ribbon Program was my contribution to that, which does make a difference at places like Dartmouth. And so that first year after I stepped down from the presidency in 2009, 2010, I was uh, invited first of all to speak at the Vietnam Memorial on Veterans Day uh, 2009 and it was really quite an honor to be invited to speak there. And uh, I did and then I spoke uh, later that year early in the winter of 2010 at uh, Berkeley uh, and I gave the Jefferson Lecture there, and I, I talked about vet war veterans and American democracy. And in, in doing this, I was uh, struck, uh, well, when they first invited me to speak at Berkeley, when the chancellor sent me the invitation, they asked if I would talk about the work I've been doing with veterans. And I said I would, but I'm a historian, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of the way that American, uh, America has treated the veterans of our wars. And uh, I was, was frustrated to discover that there weren't the, a few books that I could look at and give me the background for this because it was not my area of specialty. And I recall a dear friend of mine saying, quit whining about the absence of a book and write one yourself. And so uh, that led to the book that was published in 2012, uh, Those Who Have Born the Battle which is a history of America's wars and those who fought them. It's uh, every war from, from the American Revolution to the war in Afghanistan, uh, who, who we asked to fight these wars, how we treated them when they came home. And, and the big elephant in the room, I had a chapter in that book on the Vietnam War, and uh, that remained, anyone who's interested in, in issues having to do with veterans in the United States has to always circle back to the Vietnam War. Uh, It's interesting, Taylor, those of you who are veterans of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq are veterans of wars that that have proved to be, finally, after a number of years, equally unpopular, if I can put it that way, as was the war in Vietnam. Uh, The difference is that, that, that you've not been treated when you came home as somehow accomplices. Uh, in that war, uh, people have instead applauded you. Now, there are lots lots of things at play there, but that wasn't true of the Vietnam generation, and I wanted to try to understand that better. I had written a few op-ed pieces, and I thought I might do something on the Vietnam generation, but I very quickly realized that this this is far more formidable to take on than than an op-ed and uh, even though I hadn't planned to write another book, I did and uh, I interviewed uh, 160 people for it. I interviewed mainly veterans uh, and almost all of them are combat veterans. I was really interested in the kids who, who served and sacrificed and died in Vietnam. Who were they? Who were, these, uh, who were these young men and women whose names are engraved on the wall uh, and, and when I spoke at the wall in 09, I, I talked about this issue. We've got to remember that these are more than names inscribed in stone. These are young men and young women who had a lifetime of plans and a lifetime of dreams ahead of them. And uh, we have uh, it's our obligation to make certain that we remember them for that, for who they were. And uh, I uh, really wanted to tell their story. And so I interviewed combat veterans, uh, marine uh, uh uh, veterans and army infantry and uh, paratroopers largely. And uh, I, I wanted to try to tell the story and many of them had never really been interviewed before, hadn't been interested and didn't, hadn't wanted to be interviewed about their combat experience in Vietnam. But the fact that I was interested in trying to tell the story of their generation and even more importantly of, of their friends who had died, they said, yes, uh, they would talk to me. And I had some some remarkable interviews. And then I also interviewed probably 15 or so people who had a knock on the door uh, uh, telling them that their their son or their spouse uh, would not be coming home uh, from Vietnam. And uh, these were particularly powerful and moving stories all these years later. Uh, There are a few parts of my book that I still choke up when I look at again, not because of what I wrote, but because of what I was describing and what somebody said to me at the time that they uh, encountered this. And uh, I, I just want to try the, to tell the story of the baby boomer generation. Uh, we think of the baby boomers as uh, the kids, certainly, who protested the war. When I came to Dartmouth, uh, drove driving out from Madison, Wisconsin, and the uh, summer of 1969, I remember coming up off the New York Thruway and, and uh, uh, the New York Expressway, rather, uh, near Albany and coming north to cut across to, to Hanover and uh, seeing all of the Volkswagen uh, micro buses with uh, the, the wonderful pastel colors on them and people hitchhiking along the road coming back from Woodstock. And uh, that's, that's an image that we have of the, of the baby boomer generation. And, and it really was a remarkable generation of young people. But most people don't know that about 40% of the young men who were baby boom generation served in the military. Uh, about 10% of them served in Vietnam. Uh, that there are many more of them whose names are engraved on the Vietnam wall uh, than went to Canada uh, or went to prison. Uh, for uh, uh, for uh, refusing to be drafted, now I do I did interview some people who went to Canada and refused to be drafted, and, and I think that they're very much an admirable part of their own generation. I'm not being dismissive of them, but I want to tell the story of those who served, why they served, what they thought about doing, why why did they go in, and and they were they were very much uh, children of the 60s. And we have to remember the 60s was a long decade. It wasn't just the late 60s. They were the children who heard John uh, Kennedy uh, say, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This was the generation that grew up in the 1950s uh, being uh, told that theirs was a, their world would be a world of tremendous opportunity but uh, that they had to remember that it was also a scary world. Uh, This was the world that grew up with uh, duck and cover drills in the schools where they learned uh, as I did in my small school in small town Midwest uh, to get under the school desk uh, during uh, a nuclear attack. Uh, We just, uh, we expected uh, a nuclear attack. Uh, This was a world in which we uh, were assured that we were in, in, a, in a contest with with global communism. And this was a world in which we were told that uh, we had a responsibility that, that the United States had a responsibility to stand up to communism and that we had a responsibility to serve our country. This was the world of the baby boomer uh, generation. And when you talk to them, and I asked, uh, I think probably each of the people I interviewed, why did you go in? Many of them enlisted. Uh, some of them enlisted because they were facing the draft. Others uh, enlisted eagerly because they wanted to serve. And uh, it, often, time after time after time, they would uh, say, you know, my dad was a World War II veteran. Uh, I grew up in the world where I knew if I was called upon, I had to serve as well. And so I want to tell the story of that generation. And obviously, many of them, most of them, were disillusioned by their experience in Vietnam. Uh, They very quickly came to have serious doubts about the war. Most of them did not come home and protest the war. They, They were uneasy and sometimes even hostile toward the war protesters because they thought the protesters were dismissive of them. But they, uh, they, you know, they, some of them joined uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Most of them went upon, went about their lives. But uh, they, they, they had been disillusioned by the war, by the leadership that led us to war, and by uh, the nature of the leadership that carried out that war. And uh, they went about their lives. They weren't treated very warmly when they came home. Uh, there was not uh, as much outright hostility, as some of the folklore would have us believe. Some of that came about, I think, uh, from, from uh, some disinformation that, uh, that was out there about the anti-war left as all against uh, the soldiers who were fighting, and they weren't. Some of them uh, were hostile. Uh, I think you can see a change in the nature of attitudes toward the kids who are fighting the war. In 1965, when Lyndon Johnson first sent in combat troops, when the Marines went into Denang in March of 65, followed quickly by significant numbers of, of army battalions coming in. I think that the popular image in the United States was that these were heroic young Americans fighting in the jungles of Southeast Asia to, to, on behalf of democracy and against global communism. Within a few years, by let's say 67, as more and more American troops were involved, as more draftees were being called up and sent to Vietnam, as our casualties increased, and as there was a sense that the war seemed to have no real end, uh, there was hostility toward the war, resentment toward the war, political opposition to the war picking up. That There had been political opposition as early as 65, surely, but this picked up significantly. And uh, there was also a sense that uh, the Vietnamese civilians were suffering greatly as a result of the war. And so the the attitude toward the kids who were in Vietnam serving there was that these were poor kids who had been dragged off the street and sent to Vietnam uh, to be involved in in a cruel and uh, costly and even immoral war. I think by late 1969, when the story broke about uh, My Lai, about Lieutenant Kelly and the uh, uh, slaughter, really, of several hundred innocent Vietnamese at the village of, of Mi Lai in uh, Vietnam, all of a sudden, in the minds of some, the kids who were fighting over there became not victims of, uh, of a cruel uh, and uh, immoral war, but perpetrators of a cruel and immoral war, and it was just a, a major shift. Uh, I find it Uh, Very troubling that probably in the 1970s, most Americans, if they're asked if they knew somebody serving in Vietnam, more of them would have known Lieutenant Calley than anyone else. Uh, It's uh, it's not a it's not a good story. Uh, There were as as many heroes in Vietnam as there have been in any war. You know from your own experience uh, that war calls upon people, combat calls upon people to do some remarkable things, and uh, it's not premeditated, it's it's done. You step up uh, when you're facing a dangerous situation or your friends are facing danger. And uh, the Vietnam had as many heroes as any war, but uh, there are no publicly acclaimed heroes. It was not the sort of war from which we, we sort of saluted individuals as heroes. There weren't the Liberty Bond tours of World War II where we'd bring out all of the people the survivors from Iwo Jima to sell Liberty bombs. Right. Uh, it was just a, a different sort of war. I, I've called it the Apocalypse Now war. The the movie Apocalypse Now uh, uh, was it was sort of I think I describe it in the book as, as Vietnam meets Woodstock. It's sort of a, a sense of the here's here's the '60s generation at war, uh, uh, killing and slaughtering civilians and a war with no purpose and. Uh, I, I, I said a few weeks ago, and I, think I say this in the book really, but in a, out in Burbank, California in some remarks that I made there, I said that Apocalypse Now may be a good movie, but it's not good history. And uh, the first person, there were a couple of hundred people in the room, and the first person to raise his hand after I finished speaking was somebody who said, uh, I was a screenwriter on that movie, and uh, it was historically accurate and and I didn't debate him in that forum it's it's not it's not history it may be accurate in the way that, that movies often are in terms of uniforms and language and, and address dress and equipment and other things that people do and music but uh, it it did not uh, it did not represent the war in vietnam and so that's that's the burden that that generation came home with
1: now being that you're an historian, um, it may it makes me wonder. The Vietnam generation was treated really worse than any other generation has ever been treated, as far as coming home and and the treatment they received from the, um, you know the people back home. Why why do you think um, uh, there was this blimp in an American? you know, popular society where that generation got treated the worst. I mean, a lot of my buddies, we talk about how we feel like we're very fortunate and that really the Vietnam generation kind of paved the way for us to get treated as kindly and as well as we do. And, you know, if you're doing the military nowadays, it's everyone's, oh, you know, you're a hero, you're a hero. It's it's automatically um, assumed. And... I, I, what, what Was it just the climate of the country? You said maybe it was that generation. It just seems like it was a very unique time where there's a blimp of just a lot of negativity, and then it led to back to a lot of positivity. Um, is there anything you can point to as a story why that was the case?
0: I think it was uh, opposition to the war, discomfort with, with, with the war, uh, growing discomfort with stories about uh, how it was being fought, of which me Lai was, was such a, a, a major uh, negative example. Uh, there were plenty of instances in Vietnam and I certainly described some of them in my book where uh, there were innocent civilians who were killed and sometimes intentionally killed. There are nothing on the scale of me Lai and most kids who served there did not conduct themselves that way, uh, I can assure you. Uh, the Vietnam generation uh, came home uh, uh, almost individually. Uh, came home. Uh, you, you guys came home from Afghanistan with a unit. Correct. Yeah,
1: big unit,
0: right? And and so your unit probably had a, a band playing when you stepped off the plane. These right. guys these guys uh, did, were not met by any bands. They came back alone, uh, and and they discovered. Uh, I think it's more indifference than it was, or maybe embarrassment more than, than hostility. I, I talked to people and, and read accounts of people who would say, you know, I, nobody asked me. Uh, one uh, army nurse talked about uh, coming home and going to her small town where her local parish and the community had a potluck dinner with welcome home and uh, she realized afterwards that uh, in this wonderful warm evening nobody once mentioned the word vietnam nobody once asked her what it was like in vietnam Uh, a kid said you know i uh somebody said great tan he said i could have been in florida for Mm -hmm. six weeks uh, rather than vietnam for for 13 months Uh, one young marine said, you know, nobody said a word to me about it. He said, my father fought on Iwo Jima in the Marines. And I thought, okay, my dad's gonna wanna talk to me about this. And uh, my dad never asked uh, what it was like. And, and he remembered this uh, 45 years uh, later. Uh, it uh, And and then there was hostility. If, if not hostility, that, that exaggerates. There was certainly some concern within veterans organizations and the VA. uh, They were pretty much filled up with World War II veterans and and there was a concern that this new generation was going to be competing with them for uh, what they had and and they really thought of the Vietnam generation as as being a bunch of hippies Uh, (laughs) and uh, as one said we won our war and you guys uh, uh, didn't. Uh, They uh, described uh, one kid talked about going to see somebody at the VA about the tremendous nightmares and trauma that he was having uh, he had worked uh, in graves registration so he really had heavy duty and uh, the, uh, the, the, the the World War II counselor that he said that he met said oh come on cut out this crap we got over it so can you guys mm-hmm. get out of here and he right. said he left and he had never went back for 30 years and by the time he went back the VA was much more comfortable with it there was not a recognition of post-traumatic stress it was called in the early 70s the vietnam syndrome as if this this thing which was as old as as ulysses as old as shakespeare as old as the civil war when it was called soldier's heart or combat uh, fatigue in world war ii or shell shock in world war one they called it the vietnam syndrome as if it was something unique to this whiny generation that wasn't until the late 70s that there was a recognition of post-traumatic stress and uh, what it is and what it did to people and what combat, the the, the contribution that, that a stressful combat situation could could uh, could add to that. And uh, your generation uh, is able now uh, to, to get counseling on that, uh, to, to talk to people and, and you needn't feel embarrassed right. about it. You don't have something that's unique that's sort of a failing of your own of your own moral fiber or your own physical strength, uh, it's it, it happens.
1: And, de- and I definitely feel like the, like I said, the Vietnam generation paved the way for us to be able to receive that kind of kind treatment. I mean, and I, I have a good buddy of mine that was in my, my squad in Afghanistan, and he actually comes on the podcast and, and, and talks once in a while. And I was fortunate enough to go to his father's Vietnam infantry units reunion in Washington D.C. a few years back, and yeah, it was just amazing hearing um, all these guys and what they had been through, and and also how some of them were treated back home. You know, I, I know like my, I think my my friend's father, like his own family, didn't want to deal with them or talk to him, or at least not positive about his 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 contribution. Um, and I I definitely think my generation owes a lot of deference to them paving the way in the sense that they bore such a heavy burden. I think it was so, I think once the dust settled the war and our, our popular culture looked back, there was this revulsion against how some people were treated. You know, the most extreme examples of the spitting on and the protesting, I think our culture said, whoa, 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 we do need to make sure we draw a very hard line between the guys and gals fighting the war and the the politicians making policy, and that was definitely I think the Vietnam generation did that for us. Um, I also it makes me think about a lot of these things. And like I said, you grew up in this time period. Uh, a lot of these people were friends or peers of yours, or at least you you know were alive watching this happen. You know some of this might have led to you taking up the mantle and 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 pushing veteran service and veteran education and you know so it started for you going to Walter Reed and and from what I understand like you were going and visiting wounded uh marine soldiers and sailors airmen and I mean were you recruiting them like were you essentially recruiting them out of the, out of their bed to come to Dartmouth or was it just encouraging them to go seek higher education I mean and what now made you do that in the first place
0: it's it's very interesting uh you'll remember as a marine veteran i'm sure hearing tales of the battle of fallujah absolutely in uh, november of 2004 and it was it was some of the heaviest combat uh, duty really since vietnam it was the heaviest combat urban street fighting certainly since since way uh, during the Tet offensive and it was it was you know just just difficult stuff and i remember watching and reading accounts of this and saying you know these these kids uh that are over there are the my age when when i was in the marines Uh, they're the age of the students that that uh, that i'm responsible for here at dartmouth as president and i wish i could do something to reach out to them and i had this conversation one time with a friend who was a marine veteran uh, and uh, he said well why don't you go visit them at uh, bethesda hospital why don't you go visit the marines there and he helped he had a friend who was in the the commandant's office and made a connection for me, and I got a pass to go visit Bethesda. And I went there in the summer of 2005, and I basically went bed to bed and uh, sort of talked to everyone, uh, asked them how they how they were doing. I asked I always asked people what happened to them, and nobody ever said I don't want to talk about it. And uh, through that, you you hear some fascinating stories, uh, you know, cruel, difficult stories about what happened uh, to people. And uh, I, you know, was invited to come back again. And I went back again, but I, I was always encouraging them to continue their education. And uh, after I think a, a second or third visit, maybe it was to Walter Reed this time, and uh, I was with. Uh, uh, the, the the spouse uh, Mrs. Pace, uh, whose husband Peter Pace was then the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and she said, "You you really need to do more of this, this college counseling when you talk to them." And I thought, "Well, that that's a good idea." And so I got in touch with, uh, I, but I'm not capable of doing that. I can talk about my experience. I can talk about Dartmouth, but I you know, I can't. I can't answer the sort of questions that people would have, you know. I am i would like to go to a community college perhaps uh, near my home in Dallas. Uh, uh, do you think that uh, they would accept the credits for the, the classes I took before? Or uh, I'm thinking about going to this school, but since I have prosthetic legs, uh, you know, will they make a, Do they make accommodation in the dorms and elsewhere for me to be able to get around? I mean, some pretty basic and important questions that no single person can answer. So I got in touch with the guy who was the head of the American Council on Education, which is the largest umbrella group of, in higher education, and said, I think it would be good to set up a counseling program there because you can call your organization then can get specific information from every school in the country and can get it quickly. And he he agreed and I agreed to try to raise the money and I did, I raised the money to get it started uh, in uh, late 2006, early 2007. It's still in place at Walter Reed Hospital, I'd raised subsequent money for it and now I've got uh, the counselor there, it's the same woman, she's just done a remarkable job affiliated with the Semper Fi Fund, uh, which is, I'm on the board of the Semper Fi Fund, so she's working with this organization. Now, there are not as many uh, recently injured veterans coming back to the hospitals. I've, I've been down to the hospitals probably 30 times, Taylor, but I haven't been there for three or four years because the last time I was there, there just weren't that many new veterans coming in. Uh, but she's still doing counseling uh, there, and I think it's very effective. Now, about Dartmouth, I recall after my first visit there, talking to this one young Marine who had some gunshot wounds from the Battle of Fallujah, and uh, you know, I encouraged him to go to school, and and uh, you know, he was on medication, and you know, it was hard. It's hard sometimes to have a really good conversation with people who were who on medication because of their pain and, and their therapy. and uh, But I got a handwritten note from him a, a month or so later and he said, I've thought about when you came by and he said, I decided I would like to go to college and I decided I want to go to Dartmouth. And uh, I uh, wrote back to him and said, well, I'm really not recruiting uh, for Dartmouth. Uh, and uh, I would just encourage you to, to get well and so I you know, we talked by phone. I encouraged him to go back home uh, to, to, get, to recuperate from his wounds and to maybe take a few classes at a, at a nearby community college just to you know see how it worked for him. And uh, he wrote me after the first semester and said I got all A's uh, do you think I'm ready to come to Dartmouth? And I said, well, if you, if you want to. And so I sent him a plane ticket and flew him up so he could take a look at the campus and see what he thought. And uh, he came here. And in fact, uh, that first year he came, there were three or four and they were all Marines because that was where the network was working at that time out of, out of uh, Bethesda. And uh, this young man is uh, now in medical school. Uh, wow. And uh, he's, uh, he's done well. Uh, I I have never been explicitly recruiting for Dartmouth. I think people have to go where they're most comfortable. Sometimes it's near home. And I also have recognized that uh, the generation that is enlisting in the professional military today, your generation, uh, these are not young men and young women that are sort of thinking, well, I'm either gonna enlist in the army or maybe apply to MIT right uh, it's not a generation the the, the kids were in en- en- enlisting probably haven't taken any college prep courses maybe they haven't taken any PS any SAT or AP exams so college was not something that was necessarily what they were thinking about doing when they enlisted at age 18 uh, I've often uh, encouraged people to to, to take a year, to, to go to a local school. And I've encouraged, when, when I was president, uh, I encouraged our admissions people uh, to look carefully at these applicants who are coming out of community colleges and other places where we normally don't have that many uh, transfer applicants. I said, these, these are people to just to look at. How are they doing? And uh, I think you'd discover if you look at Most of the veterans who have come to Dartmouth, including on the Posse program, uh, have all been essentially transfer students. They've taken at least a few classes someplace else, and I think that's an important thing to do. I love seeing veterans to Dartmouth. I just sent a note yesterday to some uh, young men. They're, They're all young men who have been admitted under the transfer. Uh, program uh, this month uh, telling them I'd be available to talk to them to answer any questions they had and congratulating them on it Uh, and uh, I just think it's terribly important that we do it I I would like to see even more veterans come here it's been this year has been very competitive at Dartmouth because of the high yield on the the regular application process Uh, I I have a hunch that uh, I don't know the numbers but I have a hunch there'll be fewer transfer students coming in. Period, this year because of uh, that yield and the concern about uh, the size of the entering classes next year. But uh, I think we have to do it. And and you know it's it's not you know part of this is because I think a school like Dartmouth uh, is very privileged, and privileged uh, institutions have an obligation. Uh, we have an obligation to step up uh, and uh, to. Uh, to, to be a responsible citizen of the country. We, ha- we have a responsibility to reach out to those who have served their country. Uh, but uh, uh, I also think that, that admitting veterans to Dartmouth is, you know, is not some condescending favor that we're extending to some kid who served in the Army right, in Iraq, yeah. Afghanistan. Uh, this school is better. All right. because of the veterans who have come here. This school, you know, I've made a case many years about the value of diversity, and I, I truly think that it's an important value in a community. Uh, and it's, it's because of a broader obligation that we have, but it enriches our education. We learn more when we're learning with and encountering and learning from students whose background and experiences are different from our own. That's that's clearly the case, and think of what the students who come to Dartmouth, very traditional in terms of age and and their their path, Uh, think what they can learn from from having a veteran uh, sitting next to them in in a seminar room or uh, in a classroom. They can learn a great deal. We get more from you guys than you get from us, Uh, and uh, so we continue to be in your debt.
1: I think that's a very good point you make, too, is that uh, it's not done in a sense of, of pity, because I think sometimes, you know, whatever. That, that's sometimes how it can go when, when you have these these veterans programs. Sometimes people can look at you as like, oh, well, you're someone that I need to pity and and help, and oh, you poor thing. And and that's not the case. You know, we're a very resilient, hardworking group of people. And uh, I, I I remember when I was thinking about, you know, I was transitioning out and and going through different things. I had a mentor who was a retired admiral and I would always be very hesitant to ask too much. You know, he'd take time out and get coffee with me and and talk to me. And I was just very appreciative that he'd take time out of his day as he's transitioning and his transition entailed, you know, starting his own company. So he's very busy. And I remember him telling me it was a great thing that I was humble. And I think a lot of veterans are humble he's like but you have to be a little bit more like almost like aggressive about asking for help and he's like and he said something that really helped me out and he said you're not asking for a handout you're asking for an opportunity he said, without you asking for a handout I wouldn't come here and spend my work day talking to you Because, goes back and tell you you just want a chance to prove you can do it and and him saying that kind of Reframe my thinkings. I I felt like I was being a beggar or something by asking for anything. He goes, "No, you know, you're not asking for me to just hand you money or something." He's like, "You're just asking for a shot," and I think that's important for a lot of veterans. Like a lot of guys and gals just want a shot at it. They're not asking you to be you know hand them anything. Um, and I think it's great that you know you and other educators and have pushed this veterans in higher education uh, need. I think it is very much needed. And I think sometimes it's just a good message to get out there. Cause sometimes the veteran community itself, like the veterans themselves, I think self-cancel out. Like they don't even think, well, Dartmouth, like, or any school. Oh, it's not for me. Like, it's not I you know I didn't grow up that way. Like I was a grunt. I was a marine. I was a whatever. Like, I'm not gonna go to Dartmouth. Don't be silly. You know, it's like a silly it's a silly thing. Right? You know, it's kinda like that. And, you know, that's kind of why I even like started this podcast. I wanted to get all kinds of different voices. You know, you have this someone like you who's had those experiences as a as a marine yourself, and then as a professor, and then as an administrator, and as a, you know, the president of the college, all the way down to regular veterans. Say, hey, like this is very doable. You can do this if you're willing, you know, like you said, to go to uh, a community college or another school and, and and put in the hard work so you can have some data, and then apply somewhere or wherever you want to go. Like I said, whatever fits best for you. Um, that's great it's also important to know i think some guys want to go to tech schools and vocational schools and that's and that's honorable and perfectly fine too but i think it's good to get these voices out so guys can hear like this is a this is happening people are going to these schools there is a pathway if if i put the work in and i reach out and i apply i actually have a shot at 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 going someplace like this and i think that's just sometimes a narrative that is um just all too often you know not put out there enough
0: yeah and it's a different world today taylor that 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 your generation of veterans is encountering uh the the kids could come back from world war ii or korea or vietnam and uh, if they wanted to do that they could get a job in the local factory and uh probably count on having that job for 30 or 40 years and having uh, a retirement package when they finished. Uh, as you well know, those, those opportunities are not there anymore. And anyone who, who imagines those opportunities will provide them a secure job for 30 or 40 years, it won't. If you look at the unemployment data for the current generation of veterans, it was higher for a while. But if you control for education, uh, it was not. It's just that, that, that you're coming back, almost all of the veterans, uh, enlisted men and women who are getting out do not have a college degree, obviously, and it's a different world today. And uh, it's not, again, it's not just reaching, it, it is reaching out a hand and saying uh, uh, you can do this, but it's also, you know, the, the, this republic has, will be enriched by having your generation of veterans assume greater and greater positions of responsibility. You've already demonstrated that you're willing to sacrifice. You've already demonstrated that you can exercise leadership. You've already demonstrated that you know how to work well in a, in, in a group of people. You also, you've already demonstrated that you know how to take an order and follow it, and you also know how, know how to exercise leadership yourselves. You've already demonstrated you can work in a very highly technological environment. You've already demonstrated that you can work uh, in a very sensitive environment with people of different cultures and religions and backgrounds. Uh, You have demonstrated so much. You have so much to contribute. We have to provide ways to enable you to contribute, and we'll be the beneficiaries from that.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think that's I think that's such an important message that a lot of guys and gals. The reason you join, we all have many reasons why we join. But I think for most people, there is some part of you that has that that want that civic duty, that, that 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 patriotism or what have you, and and a lot of guys and gals lack lack purpose when they get out. Like when I counsel guys and people that are struggling, um, especially from the infantry community, because that's where I come from. You know, it's usually lack of purpose that I think plagues most people, and I've said this in other podcasts numerous times. But you know, it can be anywhere from just trying to find a job to like they're having some serious, you know, suicidal thoughts. Or, I mean, I've I've talked to guys on the phone that had the gun in their head, and I'm like, dude, don't do it. And, and but you know, when, and and I say this all the time, but no matter what what part of the spectrum you're on, it, when you when I start talking to them, it's always lack of purpose. And I try to tell yeah. I try to tell people like, look, you can retool your warrior mindset. You know, just because you don't hold a weapon anymore doesn't mean you can't take all that energy and all that drive and repurpose that your new weapon can be a pencil, it can be a pen. It can be you know, like you did, you did some veterans advocacy work with the Yellow Ribbon program. You could that that right there will change more veterans' lives than anything else. So if you have a drive to still serve your nation, if you have a drive to still serve, you know, your populace of veterans, A good pathway it's not the only pathway but a good pathway is going to school getting your degree and there's so many ways you can give back it whether I said, it doesn't have to be vets it can just be society as a whole right but for those who really are still holding on to that identity uh, and it's really important to them well there's a lot of veterans advocacy work to be done whether it's like that gentleman you mentioned went to medical school or someone who wants to become a lawyer or get involved in politics I mean there's so many different ways you can make a difference and so many guys sit at home and they're trying to figure it out. And they're not purpose. They're working odd jobs. They don't know what to do. And I try to tell them like, this isn't the only way, but doing school is a good way to relight that fire. You had like that, that fire you had when you first joined when you were a new Marine, you wanted to really prove yourself to the, your senior Marines really bad. And you had this drive to serve and you're so motivated, refine that and repurpose it. And for school. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and then are any closing thoughts from you before we head out for today? Or
0: No, I'm just delighted to, to, to be part of this podcast and I admire you so much for for uh, coming to Dartmouth as a student and, and for uh, uh, taking on the uh, uh, the difficult uh, problems of transitioning to this new environment, this new school, new school and uh, saying even while I'm doing this, I want to try to share uh, through this podcast uh, a network, uh, some of my own experiences, and the and and, and 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 the ideas of some people that'll come in here to talk to me. So you've already demonstrated the point that I just made, which is you guys have so much to contribute. Our our responsibility, in the most selfish sense, is to enable you to do that. Uh, it's 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 a it is a handout, uh, but uh, it's uh, it's it, it, There's nothing gratuitous. There's nothing condescending. You have earned that handout uh, by your service and uh, we have a responsibility and finally we can be the beneficiaries from that.
1: Absolutely and I want so if anyone is listening especially veterans or friends or family of veterans you know if you listen to any of these podcasts you'll you'll see this this central theme but there is a way to you know to re-find your purpose there is a way to go to schools and if you want to there is a way to go to top tier schools these things are happening it is getting done you can hear voices like President Wright all the way down to other veterans podcasts I have and just listening to, you know, different veterans profiles. And not everyone's path is perfect and clean and easy. And most people that most even veterans that are here that I know had a lot of struggle or a lot of bumps or they had failures, they had times they didn't do well. But you know, you just keep at it and you keep at it. And you can eventually get somewhere pretty awesome. Because if you'd have told me two years ago that I would be at Dartmouth College, I would have thought you're kind of being a jerk because I, I, that's, that's kind of so far out there it's like okay really you're an ivy league school like come on let's let's be serious but it is possible and like you said it doesn't have to be an ivy league can be your closest school whatever it is just get out there get involved take some classes at least get your feet wet and try and and i hope anyone listening can can listen to the totality of these podcasts and get motivated by that and like i said just just try one class or two and you'd be surprised most guys I talked to that told me they thought they were really they thought they're kind of dumb right they kind of just they didn't try hard in high school maybe they didn't go to good high school they joined the marines didn't really you know weren't becoming scholars while they were also becoming warriors they were just focused on their job but they got out and they went to college and they were doing better than the kids around them because they had those skills you mentioned they had those capabilities you mentioned and they were more studious more disciplined and they'd grown up and some of it is even they had done a lot of manual labor and a lot of fill sandbags. And they're like, you know what, that's great and all, but I'm kind of over that. So what's the next step? So whatever it is, there can be a drive from your past military service that kind of drives you to you know, want to pursue these things. Um, I want to thank President Wright uh, for coming on the podcast today. And with that, you've been listening to the Greenside Podcast.